Hello, hello, hello. This is Killer Casting, and I'm your host, Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director for TV, film, video games, podcasts, commercials, and I like to talk about dark and twisty things. And I'm so lucky to have my wingman, my thunder from down under, Dean Laffin here to join me, who also likes the weird, the wonderful, the twisty. We do have that in common, don't we? Maybe that's why we run a podcast together. Hello, everybody. It's a big good day from down under to all listeners and to our guests. Who I have a feeling, Lisa, you're about to introduce. Oh my gosh. Dean was geeking out so hard when he started doing research on the guest we have with us today. We have none other than a two-time Emmy Award-winning director and producer, nine Emmy nominations, a Golden Globe win, a Peabody Award. I mean, I could go on and on. He's directed some of my favorite shows, including Breaking Bad, True Blood, Fargo, that we're going to talk about today, The West Wing, The Shield, and something that's very close to my heart is Good Girls Revolt for Amazon. And most recently, he's directed Yellow Jackets. Please, everyone, say hello to my friend, Scott Winand. Hi, Scott. Hey. I'm so yeah. glad to be here. That's probably the best CV of any guest we've ever had, I think, Liz, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And sometimes I look at my resume and I go, God, how old must this guy be? No, you are a young thing. You are so... You, Scott and I have been trying to collaborate for quite a few years now, and every time I meet with you, we have lunch, and we just gab about stuff and, and projects and stories, and I leave so energized because you just, you've got so many things that you're working on that you're interested in. I just think that you're amazing. I've been lucky, obviously, and but it is getting harder and harder. We are going into a whole new era, and, you know sure what it is. I don't mm. sure really anybody knows, but as usual, I have two or three projects that I want to go out with, but the market, I'm yeah. not sure what they're looking for. I'm not sure they know what they're looking for. I don't yeah. know if they can afford to do projects the, the way they used to. So it's going to, it's going to shake out obviously. And I, yeah. and I do believe it will, and we'll all be selling and making projects again hopefully I mean, so you, 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 sorry scott you say that you've been lucky but to be honest it's kind of the family business is it not when i was looking at your indb page and so on your dad was in the business your mom yes. was in the business like your, your dad was an actor and a stuntman i think in the sort of 50s is that right he was he's an actor he's still in right when i was a kid he was on television all the time right playing bad guys i I'd, I'd literally see him get killed every week my mom was uh, a casting director. Like, yeah. It looks like she cast every episode of Hawaii Five-0, the original. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She, she created Twilight the Zone. For, yeah, she created the cast for the Mary Tyler Moore show. Oh, wow. The Twilight Zone, she became a vice president at CBS in casting, and that was the first female vice president of a network. So she kind of is a pioneer in that. Respect. Yeah. Absolutely. I thought she was, she was an associate producer on the fantastic movie Ronin as well. Yes. Well, there you go. <laughs> I wanted to pivot just for a second before we get to Fargo. Scott, we lost a giant in our industry a couple of days ago. Andre Brower yeah. passed away mm. and that has just, it's just awful. He had so much more to give. And he had already given so, so much. And I wonder, did you happen to work with him on, I know that you directed for. Yes, I directed the pilot for Men of a Certain Age. Yeah. Oh, I was going to talk to you about that show. Great. Yeah, a great show. Uh, oh, so underrated. Well, what it was is that Ray Romano sold it to HBO. 
and it should have been done at HBO. Mm -hmm. But things happen. It ended up not going, and then TNT picked it up. And we read the script, and everybody liked it. But I think secretly, TNT thought, oh, we're going to get every, everybody loves Raymond. We're going to get mm -hmm. a city. <laughs> and of course, Ray's intention was to do something very different. And so their expectations were one thing and Ray's were another. And I tried to float between that. I think the show came out great. I really like, that's the show we won the Peabody for. Mm -hmm. so it, it won a few seasons and it was a great cast. And that's when I met Andre Brower and he really was making that switch to comedy there. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was so professional and such a delight to work with. And it, it is sad. Scott, he's the kind of actor that has such presence. Obviously, he had a huge presence on, on a screen, but on stage because he was a stage-trained yeah. actor and he had that fantastic voice. And there's just something about him that brings gravitas, both in the comedy world, certainly in Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and, and certainly in drama. I think the last thing I saw him in, and Gene and I loved this movie, was She Said. And he's only in a few yeah. scenes, and he probably has just a handful of lines, but his command of the scene, I mean, he, he's the glue in no, so many Nobody things. comes more prepared, Andre. Mm. He, he is... I respect that. He just professionally believes that he has to be ready and he's made intelligent choices and we go right to work and it inspires the other actors mm -hmm. who are lucky enough to work with him. Yeah. My, uh, I put the news in, uh, in our family chat and my kids were devastated because they're such Brooklyn Nine-Nine freaks and they were just like, no. So it was, um, yeah, very sad. But that show, Men of a Certain Age, I, I was shattered when it didn't continue because it was sort of that another example of comedy actors like Ray Romano transferring into drama and the likes of obviously Robin Williams or Melissa McCarthy or Jim Carrey. At times, very dark, very dark. I loved that show. I thought it was, maybe it resonated with me because I was of that certain age at the time as well. But yeah, I just thought that was a terrific show. Well, I did do Fargo too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's the other reason why I thought of you. I don't know how I happened to notice that you had done a couple of episodes of Fargo. What season was it? I didn't have uh, the first season. The first season. Oh my gosh. Do you want to talk about that or do you want to? Well, what I can say is that it was a great experience. And when, for what I do, the privilege is to work with talented writers and actors. And that's. I got a tremendous actors. Noah Hawley wrote both episodes. It was a real privilege, actually. And I was very stimulated. Now, my block, I did two episodes. It, I felt like the studio was asking them to really make it small because they needed to save money. So they mm -hmm. like took two days out of my schedule. Oh, God. My schedule was shorter than any other one. But I didn't feel my episodes were smaller. So they, it was a challenge, but, but the reason why they succeeded was because of the DP, uh, Dana Gonzalez, who directed the episode that we're going to be speaking about. And he did such a fantastic job. He is truly an artist. And uh, I really do. When I think of Fargo, I think of Noah, but I also think of Dana. I think mm -hmm. Noah and Dana really make that show what it is. Scott, in your experience, do you think that's a hard jump to make that once you're a popular DP, 
is it hard for people to let you direct in your experience or well, is that an, a natural evolution of that role? It's not a natural ev evolution, but I've given that opportunity to a lot of DPs on my shows. And the proof is in the doing. Uh, they understand this is about putting pieces together editorially and being able to have a vision. And they're halfway there, but they also have to be able to talk to the actors and understand the story. And not everybody knows that. I mean, there are television shows, by the way, that are very formal. So you really don't a lot of creative input. You're, you know. You're a hard guy and you're coming they, in for that week. The, yeah. They make the same show every week. Exactly. Great shows like Fargo, they really demand uh, an investment in the material and a vision. And uh, there is a... a a desire to do things that are visually stimulating mm -hmm. without being self-conscious. And it takes artistry to do that. And Dana is an artist. And it was just a fabulous episode. I'm very proud of him. I actually wrote him this morning to tell him how great the episode was. That's great. So this episode that we're going to talk about today is called The Tiger. Any words that come to mind, Scott, just about this episode, just to nutshell it, well, any reaction? Yeah, it's a celebration of an actor who I've always loved, Juno Temple. I, I watched her work in England and her British stuff way before Ted Lasso. And I was always a fan, always pitching her in my prize. But now she's really come in her own. And this character that she's playing and this episode, particularly where she is the tiger, was it, I couldn't take my eyes off of her. She yeah. ended the screen. She plays nuance as good as anybody. She makes me believe that this hundred pound girl is doing all the things that she's doing. Yeah, she's a little ninja in her own right. Well, when the show opens, we're actually with Jennifer Jason Lee's character, Lorraine Lyon. And I have warmed to her character. As Dean knows, I had exactly. some real problems. No, exactly. Yeah. I didn't she, know what she was doing initially. And yeah. now I fucking love her. Right. I yeah. love her. The speech she makes to John Hamm in this episode mm -hmm. about him being a baby. Yeah. Oh, that, well, Noah's dialogue. It's just great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, it's it's funny, Scott, because I'm a maybe because I'm a huge Jennifer Jason Lee fan from God yeah. all the way back to Fast yeah, Times yeah, at Richmond High or the movies. What was the, the Hitcher? Rush. I loved her in Hitcher. No, Hitcher oh no, amazing. Rush. Something that no one's ever seen with Jason Patrick. It was it's a drug cop undercover cop uh, drama. It's really good. Anyway, her character, I just loved it from the get go. Whereas Liz is like me, not so much. But then, as she said, she's kind of taking her on the journey, and yeah, she's warm to it, but. I just think it's a great character, fantastic writing. And of course, then it's got to be executed and she's doing it. Yeah, she really is. And, and Dana did a really good job of uh, mounting her in that scene where she confronts him. He goes to a high angle at one point on her. And it's, I find it disconcerting, but it's setting up the fact that he's leaving and he stands up and he's towering over her and she doesn't flinch. She doesn't mm -hmm. give an inch, even though he looks the way he, uh, Dana shot it, like a giant. And, yeah. and so it was interesting that with all that visual help that John was getting, Jennifer still oh, was yeah. the tower in the scene. So, but I want to talk yeah. about this very first scene with her. Okay. So we open yeah. on a Lorraine sitting at her desk, 
The way that they place her in her environment fascinates me. She's always in front of these gigantic windows, right? She's got gigantic windows in her office, and she's very pensive. You can see her wheels are spinning. And a pensive Lorraine has got to be a very dangerous Lorraine, I think. But he's placing it. He places her in her office, floor-to-ceiling windows, also in her home, floor-to-ceiling windows. And then later, she's in a restaurant with these two bajigaloops who idiots that she's having a conversation with. Also, it's floor-to-ceiling windows. And I'm just wondering, from your, I don't know, I as a director, what do you think that does? Well, first of all, that's a signature of the show. Fargo takes place in this sort of barren landscape. And the landscape is part of the story and how insignificant sometimes the characters feel in the environment. A lot of times that was exterior uh, design. But the very first shot is her sitting at her desk and the right side of the frame is filled with a graphic that says no. And it's, it really, which by the way, has existed throughout, but it is a, it, it's a statement about her view of others not going to accept yeah. bullshit. And it's, but that's also, it's like a default, isn't it? The default yeah. is. Oh it's, yeah, there. It's always not. Safe answer. Me. I, I pitched enough to studios <laughs> to know that the term. But the, yeah, but here's the thing. Generally shooting massive masters like that is something that you generally don't have the time to do because you have to cover the scene as well. And you're not going to escape without coverage of your actors speaking their dialogue. So a lot of times when you're really under the gun, you sacrifice your master. You say, well, I'll just work with a two shot and we'll go in, we'll cover the scene if we had it. But by then your lighting has moved in. You've really given up your master, but Dana, as a DP, never gives it up. And, and I do as a director as well. I don't consider it extra. I think of it as part of the story. Absolutely. And so doing Fargo was just great. And like I said, I was stole two or three days out of my schedule. And I thought this DP, it's not his problem. He's going to, he's going to complain and not be able to give me everything. But Dana was the opposite. Dana to recognize that I was under the gun. Dana understood that I wanted to still do my show regardless of that. And I felt like I had a partner and, and I felt that he, he was a partner because he was a filmmaker and a film enthusiast. So he understood how story was involved. So him becoming a director seemed very natural to me. Yeah. I want to pivot for just a second before we're going to, we will get to the rest of the episode, I promise. But I wanted to talk about wardrobe for a second because it's something that I, I really fixate on. Yeah. And Jennifer Jason Lee's wardrobe as Lorraine Lyons, I find so impeccable. It's all clean lines. There's no prints. It's black. It's white. And they put her in these fabrics. For example, in the beginning, she's in a suit with this very aggressive piping that kind of right. tracks across her body. And But then in the scene where she's with the bankers, she's in this amazing black leather jacket that's a leather breastplate across her chest. But the arms are black wool. So it's that it still is a cuts a feminine soft figure. And I just think it's so I, I just love those kinds of details. And she's got like a single thick gold chain around her neck. Yeah. And a gold watch. And I'm just wondering, what, as a director yourself, how involved are you in wardrobe? 
Do you think this is something that's coming from Noah's imagination? Well, or... I was going to say, yeah, I obviously I weigh in on all of them, but I'm gaining all that information from what I've seen done. And the costume designer and Noah have already spoken about the characters. And a lot of times I'll come in, these characters have already been established. So I get to work with that palette and do what I understand it was appropriate. When we did Breaking Bad, they would commit colors to different characters, whether you would notice it or not. And then like the character from season three to season four would change color. And, and then, but that didn't mean they wore that color exclusively. It was just the theme of that character. On Fargo, it's like John Hamm. I think he wears the same thing in every scene. Mm -hmm. He is, or when he's wearing clothes, but he, he's formidable and his character believes in a certain sort of principle about America and what's right and wrong. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't feel any obligation to dress for the occasion. Jennifer's char character does. Oh, I'm going to intimidate two bankers. I'm going to dress for that. I think maybe that's why she was wearing a leather chest plate. She wasn't mm -hmm. going to give an inch. But, by the way, in that scene, and just as a measure of the zingers that Noah's given JJL, when she says to the, they're uncomfortable, they don't want to deal with her. She says, look, I know the last time you negotiated with a woman was for a blowjob in Tijuana, but listen up. That's just a great line. No, it is. Very Noah-esque to uh, have suits a... Suits down to the ground. Yeah. It, is, it also shows a real flex. For women to talk dirty in a business meeting, that's a real flex because you're not supposed to, right? You're supposed to be a lady. You're supposed to be a professional. So whenever I'm in a meeting, the studio, and a female drops an F-bomb or says something like that, I'm like, whoa, I'm in the presence of somebody really powerful. It's interesting, too, because this takes place in a part of the country where people's expectations are preset and this whole notion of Minnesota nice, mm -hmm. it's both a front, but it's also real, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. And I think Juno plays it beautifully. Sorry about biting your ear. She's sincerely, it, and she even warns them, if you do this, I'll do this, but yeah. she's trying to be nice about it. Yeah. It doesn't make her any less of a tiger. Right. Well, if we just nutshell this kind of the first third of this episode, we, we discovered Dot kind of sleeping in this bedroom that's we know is not hers because it's all right. cream. It's high end and she's wearing monogrammed cream matching pajamas that say LL, which I think is Lorraine Lyons. And we hear in the background Lorraine and Dave Foley, one eyed Dave Foley canoodling kind of what are we going to do with her? Yeah. How do we get her under our power? And that 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 quest for power is just a really interesting. Well, it, with the, what I found interesting about that scene was uh, Dorothy or Dodd or Dorothy, but her other name is Nadine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you, she's always thinking more than you give her credit for. So I in that scene, even though she appeared to be sleeping, I kept wondering if she was overhearing that conversation, that she was a step ahead. And it didn't matter to some degree because once they came in the room, she got it. And what I thought was so interesting is that she, we saw her project mm -hmm. two or three outcomes. And, and she, you see her thinking and choosing this little little woman is thinking about her choices. And, and again, Noah's 
dialogue, the choice that she makes, you admire it. And she does that thing where she very politely says, if you attempt to take me against my will, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but I gouged this guy's eye and I bit his, and I just, not that I'm admitting to that, but they don't, they hesitate, but then you do a hard cut and she's obviously on the gurney and been captured, but indeed the two yeah. people were hurt in yeah. trying to take her. So, I mean, she's constantly being underestimated by the people around her. But yeah, so they get her, they shove her on the gurney and they take her to the Walter, which I thought was so weird, the Walter Mondale, whatever. Yeah. I mean, is that like a, a dig that there's a mental hospital or that? No, I, I think know. it wasn't Mondale. Was he, was he? He was. I can't remember now. Oh, I think you might be right. Yeah. yeah like Hubert Humphrey, Mondale, yeah. there were these Democrats were famous in Minnesota. Copy that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And even though that they have, they have her in restraints, she does get over on the one orderly and the poor nurse and off she goes. She's in the nurse's uniform. It's a great cold opening. It's a great sequence. Yeah. And, and again, I believed it. Yeah. I actually believe she did that. And that is a credit to Dana and to June. Right, right, right. She doesn't have these superhuman strength or she doesn't no, have like... No, I character. believe that she makes use of what she has. Yeah. And and she can take care of herself with a guy who's 100 pounds right. know, heavier right. than her. Right. So the next sequence we've kind of already talked about, but this is Lorraine at a fancy restaurant with these yeah. two bankers. And I think it's so interesting. And, and Dean, I don't know what you think about this, but she's already got all the money, right? She's rich. She's clearly powerful in her world, but it's not enough. And I think this no. goes back to her interview with the Forbes reporter that he doesn't respect her because mm. of the way that she makes her money. And I'm wondering right. if that's what this whole scene is about, is getting into banking and having a totally different kind of respect. Yeah, I, I don't know that she's got any shame in her, but maybe the perception is that making your money off debt is one thing, but she'd rather, or she'd like to add making money via credit as well, because that's a more, I don't know, maybe it's more socially acceptable. I'm not sure. But it also sort of re reminded me a little bit of The Godfather 3, where, which by the way, I'm a, her I'm a heretic. I love The Godfather 3, but we'll park that for another time. But it, she's sort of trying to, maybe it's just she's trying to sort of go legit. Like, like Michael Corleone was trying to do in The Godfather 3 with his foundation. I don't know. It had echoes of that for me. Yeah. Well, I, know that, I, I, I know that's a long bow to draw, but. No, no. I think uh, both credit and debt are legit. She doesn't break laws. She bends them, violates them to, to her satisfaction. And it was interesting, too, because after her scene with John, it was a, I realized these are two bad guys. And yet I very much was rooting for her. So oh, it's okay. interesting that I, I, amongst my villains, I've chosen my favorite villain, and yeah. which is a, a very much a Fargo type of thing. I decided that this villain, who I don't like, and I know is a threat to a character who I love, kind of respect her. It was like Billy Bob Thornton in the my yeah. season. He was the he had the most integrity. He had sort of a code. A code. And, and I feel like Jennifer Jason Lee has, she has these beautiful speeches, uh, her philosophy about you're in a zoo and I'm the zookeeper. Hi, it's Darren Dunbar here, actor and co-founder of We Audition. And I'm just stopping by Lisa's podcast to give all of the listeners of Killer Casting a special discount code 
for WeAudition.com. For those of you that don't know, WeAudition is an amazing website and app for professional actors to help them find a self-tape reader on demand. There are readers available 24-7 all around the world whenever you need them. So you could pick the right reader for the genre or the type of role you're reading for or even a specific accent. And it's really simple. You just click onto the website of the app, select the reader that you want to use and they'll come right up on video chat and then just do the scene like they were in the room with you. And for those of you that want a little side hustle, you can also make money as a reader on We Audition, helping other actors. So jump online, use code KILLER for 25% off. That's KILLER at WeAudition.com for percent off. And now back to the podcast. Well, let's get to the scene that I've been waiting for four episodes now. I've actually been waiting for this confrontation between Lorraine and John Hamm's Sheriff Tillman with more anticipation than maybe his reuniting with Juno's right. character. but Because I want to see these two titans. What do they do when they are in a room together? So Sheriff Tillman has come to Lorraine's house. She's had quite a busy day already, having just <laughs> met with the bankers. And now he's waiting for her. And he wants to just talk to her about Dot, how Nadine is his wife, and I want her back. And like she's done before with the local police, when confronted about Dot, Dorothy, she may not like Dorothy, but she sure as fuck is not going to let anybody else take her from her. She mm. wants to control this relationship for better or worse. And so she's not going to just hand over her daughter-in-law. And they have this delicious dialogue, as you've already said, Scott, how he kind of tells her his philosophy. And she says, oh, you mean you, you want to be a baby, right? No responsibility. Damn. You I want mean, freedom with no responsibility. Yeah. And I, I just love that dialogue. Yeah. Because I do feel like a large portion of our country wants the same thing. They want right. their notion of what freedom means, but with no responsibility at all. Right. Yeah. And you can see that she might have actually have a lot in common with his character. I mean, they're probably on the same political spectrum and she probably has no oh, yeah. use for government and he doesn't have any use for government, but her status, she can't see herself like him. She no, holds no, herself no. different. Yes. Yeah. I mean, okay, she, yeah, she's not a fan of Dot, but her son loves Dot and there's Scotty. So that's it. It's like game over for her. Yeah, yeah I think that's it. I mean, she always goes back to that. And I say, well, that also makes me like, mm -hmm. because she says, well, my son loves her and I'm fond of my granddaughter. She doesn't go on about it. She just says those two things and you know that she'll go she'll go the distance when it comes to mm -hmm. those. And Jennifer Jason Lee has planted this affection for the granddaughter, even though she's had really no dialogue with her. But that feels true to me that yeah. even though Scotty doesn't dress in pink frills and she doesn't. No, you know, I, she I agree. But they cast a beautiful young actress yeah. in that role. Fantastic. Absolutely. Okay, now the third, the next meeting of the day that she has is with Deputy Olmstead, who these two women, very different sides of the track women, have this meeting where Lorraine says, I know that you're in debt to me. And, oh, I know. And, and yeah. it's just, that's, a, that's really a hard scene to, to sit through. It is hard. And that's the zookeeper speech. And, mm -hmm. But it's interesting because it resonates more later. You start to realize that because then you go home and you see the husband who is talk about a baby and well, kind yeah, of a, a pervert, maybe. I don't know. There's something well, about oh, him. Oh, yeah. Was like, that was the first 
time we've ever seen that. And that, that I can't remember the actress's name, but her look, when she looks between her husband and Juno, it was very funny. Like, yeah. What? You have no right to even think about being attracted to another woman. But, but I started feeling for her when she, she's exhausted. Every time she comes home, when she gets out of her car, I just feel the weight on her shoulder. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And I have a question. We're going to get to the end of the episode pretty quickly, but and I have a question about her character and maybe a setup um, that I-, I wanted to ask you about. Um, but uh, this next sequence is all in the hospital where Dot's like trying to protect, oh. trying to protect. It's just great. She's trying to protect Wayne. And there is this fan theory, I don't know how far I want to go with this, that this whole season is based on The Wizard of Oz, that Dot, that Gino's character, is actually a version of Dorothy, and Scotty, mm. the little daughter, is a Scotty, Scotty dog, is actually Toto, oh. that was Toto. And for me, if this is true, then Wayne has certainly got to be the Scarecrow, this yeah. lovely character that Dorothy, in, in certainly in The Wizard of Oz, loves the most. And it's, trying yeah, to and it's interesting. I don't know how you feel about it, but earlier on, I got, because of his, him being such a, a simpleton on some level, mm-hmm. I can't believe Dorothy's affection for him, mm-hmm. but her actions always reflect a love for him. Mm-hmm. So whether she is, because a lot of times when she is speaking, it's a front. It's for her own benefit to be nice or to be loving, mm-hmm. except with her daughter, which is absolute. But her actions, when it's reflecting on her husband, is always supportive. It's like I say, I kept thinking, well, get out of there, get out of the hospital. But she wouldn't go mm-hmm. before she took care of him. Until he was protected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And you know what, Dean? I keep forgetting how many people I've cast who are actually in this show. I forgot that. And I've been saying how much I love David Rizdahl. I cast him. And I forgot it. I forgot that I cast him before. Oh, Anyway, I love him so much. He's just so layered and lovely. But anyway, so then Dot takes care of him. She leaves. She's in the wind. With this weird moment between her and Gator, which I didn't quite quite understand with the posse coming to the hospital looking for her. Oh, oh you mean when he says be quiet? Yeah, yeah. What was that about? Do you know? Well, it's interesting. I don't, I'm not sure, but she sees people. I mean, everywhere she turns, there's somebody after her. Right, right. Like those three big guys. You didn't really have to know who they were, but you knew what they were up to. They, that, that didn't look good. And, but he, she knows him and she knows him from the past. And so they share a knowing look when he first sees her in mm-hmm. the hospital. Mm-hmm. He doesn't go after her because he's standing with the FBI guys, mm-hmm. but there is a knowing look there. And that to me also extends to the elevator where mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. he says, be quiet. It feels like they're conspiring because they're both under the thumb of their of his father. Mm-hmm. And, and, oh, the speech that Dorothy makes at the house about what mm-hmm. happened in that marriage mm-hmm. and the police officer says you said they not him mm-hmm. and then i started to think was the son also involved in in the abuse that she suffered or mm. did she witness abuse like all the children being abused as well as her and, oh yeah and, and the, be that you know, as well yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there is something there that connects them because even when gator was trying to get her in her house on halloween night there was something there that wasn't animosity. It was like almost like, why did you leave me? 
mom, yeah. something like that. Yeah, um, like I, I was left alone with that man. Who he desperately wants approval from, which yeah, is, and, and that's the nature oh, of yeah. abuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, well, let's wrap it up. So we are in Indira's, Deputy Indira's house, and that's where Dot has taken her daughter to kind of hide out. Now, Scott, I'm very obsessed with wallpaper, and this is there's some amazing oh, God, wallpaper in this house. It's like this blue, very densely printed wallpaper in the back. But I'm also thinking that is not the wallpaper of a civil employee and a down on your luck golfer. Like there's something about the way the art direction of the house. What, are you speaking about the, the wallpaper in the room where Scotty was watching television? The wallpaper in the kitchen where they're having and then the furniture that they were sitting on looked like very restoration hardware. I don't know. It, it's For me, it was fighting with the identities of the occupants of the house in a weird way. It was almost over-designed. And I'm just, uh, those I, you kind know, of things. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure it was conscientious. And I'm sort of ashamed that I didn't see it as well as you did. I do feel like the composition that Dana achieved where they send the daughter out of the room, but when they end up sitting down and she literally confesses uh, the truth, they're literally in the same frame with Scotty. Mm -hmm. Scotty is in the deep background. Yeah, yeah. And that's where that blue tint from the television seemed to be coloring that room. Mm -hmm. And the foreground characters were semi, the key light was coming from the other room. And I, I just love the idea that he allowed Scotty to be in that master. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that feels, and it feels like Scotty knows more than they think she knows. She's listening. She's observing. Yeah. She's, she's figuring it out. I, I'm just, but I was just like, okay, this couple doesn't have any children. Why is there a Little Mermaid DVD there? Like that definitely stood out to me. Like, oh, she what, play- what was the husband's response? Did he say like a real girl? Yeah, is that a child? Is that a real child? Like, a real like- child? So I don't know if there's some sort of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf thing going on. But why would there be a, a, a Little Mermaid DVD? I don't know. It's something that I hope gets those little details. Like, I, I don't like to throw those away and just go, oh, just because there is. Like, why would there be? There, was there anything else that I wanted to mention? Yeah. Then Oh, and so then, okay. So then Dot seems to convince the deputy to keep her child there. And she drives away in a rental car from her husband's <laughs> rental company. But I'm thinking, <laughs> you know what? Why in the hell de- would this deputy, who cannot bear to lose her job, Right. She can't get into trouble. Like, is she going to hand this child back over to Lorraine and get her debts absolved? I mean, that's where my mind went. Though I I, I thought the same thing. And I think it was an impulsive moment. I don't think she had room to think. And she had to make a decision. And she had she's literally at the end of her rope. And so she said, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. And she did something that she would never do normally do. But I think because she connected to uh, Dorothy's situation that she did one, she stepped outside of the rules for once. The rules have not done her any favors. Mm -hmm. She's played by the rules her whole life and look at where she is. So I think that was an impulsive thing. And I think it's fragile, that decision. I don't think it's on solid ground. But I, the thing that I was most curious about was Dorothy's expression when she was walking to the car. She looked, I don't know if she was so upset 
about what she was about to do or was it her fear that what she was about to do wouldn't work? I don't know. I love that cliffhanger. And the only last thing I'm going to say about the episode, I mean, Noah Hawley must really hate law enforcement because this (laughs) the law enforcement is either corrupt like Tillman or completely incompetent like the FBI agents. All my FBI friends are like screaming like no FBI agent is ever going to let a suspect go into a bathroom by themselves where there's yeah. clearly a window or there or the law enforcement is like deputy Indira and state trooper wit like they're smart and they are ahead of the game but they have no power they can't seem to do good or get yeah, justice that's kind of the thing they're beyond their jurisdiction yeah. so my two fbi agents were were Key and Peel. That was Keegan <laughs> Michael Key and that Jordan Peel, and right. they were fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah, I never saw the first. I've only seen season four and season five, so I'm and I'm more than happy. And everybody says that the first is, season is was four the was for the Chris Rock one. Yes. Yeah, that was Jesse Buckley. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, she Brilliant. was fantastic. Any other thoughts? You too about this episode? Look, there were a couple that stuck out for me. What is it? I'm not sure I can negotiate with a man named named yes. after a breakfast pastry. Right, <laughs> that was fantastic. And there was no no Ole this week. No Ole. No, no, no Ole. So presumably he's still eating pancakes. Right. But anyway, yes. <laughs> yeah. She's so pivotal. So yeah. Mm. And that actor has actually given an interview since, and apparently the woman, the old elderly lady whose house he's come into. Mm. Dean and I thought that was his true mother, but apparently yeah. it's not. It's oh, not. Really? It's just some lady that he intimidates. Uh, yeah, just a wow. home invaded, and she's just kind of okay. I guess you're <laughs> here now. Yeah. The other thing that I'm wondering, Lisa, if, if it ever gets resolved when Tillman's talking to Lorraine and he says about the marriage, something like "my second, her first. and I'm just wondering what ever happened to the first Mrs. Tillman. Will we ever know? I'm sure yeah. it's not good. Yeah. Anyway. Well, Scott, thank you. Yeah. So but just before we go, sorry, Lisa, if you're going to, I can tell you're going to wrap up now, but I do want to say, I want to tell Scott that I'm going to backtrack. There was the show that I did, was intrigued by, and I haven't got to watch it yet, but now meeting Scott has inspired me. I'm going to watch the thing about Pam, which you directed, did you not, Scott? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I'm curious to see it because it does look interesting, but more to the point, you and I have a Kevin Bacon factor of one because- your DOP on that was my old Melbourne chum, John Brawley. Yeah. What, again, uh, John is a force of nature. Right. Oh, my God. The stuff he could do. We were, it wasn't an easy production. And I had to step in late. So my prep was uh, invaded. and And we would go in to do huge sequences in like you know, 20 minutes. But John had this ability. He had such a great, he and I could literally dance together. He, I would block with the actors and John would stay over my shoulder and I would move where I saw the camera moving and John would mimic and, and what would normally take three or four setups, John would then handheld, hold mm. and be able to move and cover and, and, the dance was for me to move the actors in such a way where it wouldn't violate the lighting. That would be a natural pass off to the dialogue. 
but I've never worked with a DP who could keep all that in his head. And John could, and it, it right. really made certain things very possible. Well, I used to hire him for corporate video shoots here in Melbourne, like 20 oh, years ago, but oh yeah, he'd shot a whole bunch of stuff for me. I had him in helicopters shooting aerials of different things. And now, of course, he's, he's now very, very busy DOP in, in Hollywood. He's shot, he did the morning show and uh, Queen of the South. And yeah, he's, if you look at his IMDB, it's just off the charts. So he's graduated a little bit beyond my league, Scott. Well, he's, he's a delight and, and a great DP and somebody who I will hopefully have the fortune of working with. Well, right. it's been a delight. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. It, as always, it's so great to see you. And I well, hope it's someday... actually, that's the big incentive for me, Lisa, was to see you. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. We're going to make a show together one of these darn days. I sure hope so. As a matter of fact, now that we've talked, I have to go dig up all my stuff and see what I can share with you. Either way, uh, let's just plan on talking yeah. so I can. All right. Well, you have a lovely holiday, my friend, and take care. All right. For and now, this, this is Killer Casting signing off. <laughs>